Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm so grateful that you chose to worship with us this morning. I want to extend a welcome back to Dennis and Lynn Denby. Would you guys just stand real quick where you are? Um, visiting from Colorado here in town for a wedding, but uh, Dennis used to serve as one of our elders here, and we're, we're just grateful for them and, and praying that they will wake up to God's will to move back to Tennessee. Um, so... Join us in praying along those lines. Seriously, I am excited uh, to be serving as your tour guide this morning as we continue our sermon series through the little Old Testament short story called Ruth that we've given the subtitle from Ruin to Redemption. And we're going to be looking at chapter three today, which means that we're, we're now at the, the high point of the narrative. We're, we're, we're halfway through the story at the height of tension and drama and suspense and I know that not all of you have been along with us the whole time on this journey through Ruth, and so I'm going to start off my sermon with a segment that I'm calling Previously, <laughs> on From Ruin to Redemption. This story takes place around 1100 BC when there was a famine in Israel, but instead of calling out to God for help, a Jewish couple named... I'm, I'm, I want to say Elimelech, but my, my friend with the doctorate that spoke a few weeks back that um, has his doctorate in Hebrew said Eli Melech. So I've got to reprogram myself. A Jewish couple named Eli Melech and Naomi turned their back on the promised land. They, they turned their back on the place of God's pro presence, provision, and protection. They took their two boys and they ran. But they didn't just run anywhere. They ran where? Moab. Moab, which would have elicited an audible gasp from the original audience. The Moabites are immoral, idolatrous enemies of Israel. And in chapter 1, we quickly learn that things did not go well for this family in Moab. Naomi's husband, Eli Melech, uh, dies, then her two sons step further away from God by marrying Moabite women, and then these two sons also die leaving Naomi widowed, without heirs, without any hope of protection and provision in that patriarchal agrarian society where women couldn't inherit land and had very few legal rights. So Naomi is utterly destitute, utterly destitute. This is a crisis, to say the least. And at this point, Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over and decides to travel back to her hometown of Bethlehem. She implores her two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law to go back to their Moabite families, not to go along with her, but to go back to their Moabite families where they would, would find protection and provision. But one of them named Ruth loyally clings to Naomi out of self-sacrificing love and says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm going to do my best to take care of you, Naomi, in your old age and in your grief and in your pain and in your barrenness and your, your widowness. Is that a word? I don't know. I just made it up. Ruth is committing herself to lovingly care for her mother-in-law. Now, what we need to know is that Naomi really did not want to take Ruth, a Moabite, back to Israel with her. That would have been considered by Naomi more of a liability than an asset. But she's seemingly unable to shake off Ruth. She's left with no choice and arrives in Bethlehem broken, destitute, angry, and bitter at God with an unwanted Moabite widow in tow named Ruth as a daughter-in-law. And as readers, we should ask two questions at this point in the story. 
The first one is this. If we turn our backs on God, does he also turn his back on us? If we turn our backs on God like Naomi and Elimelech did, does he also turn his back on us? Has God turned his back on Naomi? How would Naomi have answered this question in chapter one? How would she? She said, yes, <laughs> yes. God does turn his back on us. Don't call me Naomi anymore, she said. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I left here full, but the Lord has brought me back totally empty. Because I turned my back on him, he's turned his back on me. But little does she know that standing right next to her in the form of a Moabite woman named Ruth is the very fullness of God. Ruth has already embodied God's loving kindness, his loyal love, his hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love to Naomi. Naomi just hasn't realized it yet. Perhaps, just perhaps, there's more mercy in God than there is sin in us. We're getting clues as we go along the narrative. And chapter one ends with a glimmer of hope. The last verse in the chapter says this, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's food once more in Bethlehem. There's bread in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. So the second question that we should ask at this point is this. Is it possible that God ordained sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph? Could God actually be at work in the shadows behind the scenes here? Preparing to bring beauty from ashes, purpose from pain, delight from despair, hope from hurt, salvation from sinfulness, redemption from ruin. Could that be what's going on? So at the beginning of chapter 2, we as the readers are now keenly aware of two major tension points in the narrative. Here's two widowed women in need of what? What are their two major needs? They need food and they need family. And the first need of food is tackled in the second chapter of Ruth that we've looked at in the past couple weeks. It's harvest time, and Ruth goes out into the fields hoping to pick up extra grain, extra scraps left by the landowner's harvesters. And she just so happens to wander into the fields of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be of the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz just so happens to walk up when Ruth is waiting there for permission to work in the field. And, and Ruth just so happens to catch his eye and the narrator is painting for us these glimmers of hope. Boaz tells Ruth that she's more than welcome to glean in his fields, where he implores her to stay close to his workers, where she will be looked after and protected. And at mealtime that day, he gives her a deluxe meal with, with roasted grain and wine and, and even leftovers to take home to Naomi. And he tells his reapers to intentionally leave extra grain for her to pick up the rest of the day. And as readers are going, time out here. This is awesome. This is great. Oh my goodness, this Boaz guy is really into her. Not only is this food problem getting abundantly taken care of, now there's hope that the family problem is also going to be solved. This is awesome. This is great. Ruth brings all her leftovers and the abundance of grain that she had gleaned back to Naomi, and Naomi is flabbergasted. She stumbles over her words and asks Ruth, who on earth showed you this abundant blessing, this abundant favor? And Ruth gives her the name of the man, Boaz, Boaz. And at this point, 
Naomi, despite all her bitterness, remember bitter, angry Naomi from chapter one? Even Naomi starts to hope because Naomi knows Boaz. He's a relative of hers. He's of the clan of her deceased husband. I almost said Elimelech again. Elimelech. He's a potential kinsman redeemer for them. She's well past marrying and childbearing age, but Ruth isn't. Now, what's a kinsman redeemer? I don't want to just throw that out there without explaining it. This this is a reference to the the social security of the day, uh, sort of. Um, It's kind of weird to our ears, our modern ears, but it's a practice known as leveret marriage. If a widow was left without an heir, it was the widow's deceased husband's brother. Okay, you got that? The widow's deceased husband's brother's responsibility to marry the widow, father a son for her so that she could have protection and provision, and so that his brother's family line and inheritance could be preserved and passed along through the male offspring. In a patriarchal culture uh, where property could only be passed down through the male line, this was the way things were done back then. Sounds really weird to us, but that's, that's what it was. Now, if there was no brother to serve as the kinsman redeemer, as was the case for, for Naomi and Ruth, then other more distant family or clan members could volunteer to take on the responsibility, but, but they didn't have an obligation to do so. And so all of this hope is being built up through chapter 2. By the narrator. There seems to be this thing between Boaz and, and Ruth, and he's a potential kinsman redeemer. But then we get to the end of the chapter, and it concludes with a very, probably maybe mo- the most anticlimactic verse in all of the Bible. This is what we read at the end of chapter two. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. That's a long time, like take two or three months to, for the harvest to happen. And then what does it say at the end? Wah, wah, wah. And she lived with her mother-in-law. What a downer. What a downer. The barley and wheat harvest would have lasted two or three months. And even though Ruth has caught Boaz's eye, it's been all this time and he hasn't made a move. Come on, guy. Ruth still lived with her mother-in-law. Naomi is starting to get anxious here. They have food at least temporarily, but they don't have, what's the second need? They don't have family. They don't have family. And Ruth is getting anxious They're still in a very vulnerable and precarious position for the long term. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She has a line of sight to the redemption of God. She's hoped that things would work out between her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and Boaz. But now it's stalled out, and she's getting desperate. God, you've got to hurry up here. You've got to do something, or all hope is going to be lost. That's what Naomi is thinking. Have you ever been so close to something that you really, really wanted or needed? You can almost taste it, but it just seems a little bit out of reach. That's where Naomi is right here. Have you ever been so close to something that symbolizes for you freedom and joy and life and security and, and, and redemption and hope, but, it, but it's just not happening, at least not on your timetable? This is where we find Naomi and Ruth at the beginning of chapter 3. A kinsman redeemer. Someone to provide protection and provision for them is ever so close. They can almost taste it, but ever so far away. Maybe you're here this morning longing to be married. It just hasn't happened yet. Maybe you're a married couple longing for a child, but struggling with infertility. 
Maybe you're praying for a breakthrough in a relational conflict that just seems to stay stuck. Maybe you're praying for relief in an unpleasant vocational situation, but but nothing seems to be working out. Maybe you're dreaming of better days, but reality is a stubborn thing. I think there's a lot we can learn in our narrative this morning. So the question for our time together is this. What should we do when God has us waiting? What should we do when God has us waiting? Well, let's turn to Ruth chapter 3 and see what Naomi decided to do in her waiting. Perhaps we can learn from this, but we got to keep in mind (laughs) that oftentimes narratives are merely descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? In other words, they describe what happened, but they don't necessarily tell us what ought to have happened, okay? And more times than not, in the Old Testament, it's actually showing something very twisted that happens and going, don't do that. Don't do that, okay? Narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. Well, let's see what happens here at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Do you know what this phrase means in Hebrew? Ruth, you need a man. And I've got a plan. It's a loose translation. But um, that's really what she's scheming here. Naomi continues her thought in verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. You know, how did she know that? Well, it's the end of the harvest. And in this agrarian society, Naomi knows exactly where Boaz and his workers will be and what they will be busy doing that night. He will be winnowing grain at his threshing floor. Threshing floors are often secluded places located on, on, on uh, hillsides um, where the evening winds would blow and they, the, the workers would take the, the grain and throw it up in the air and the, grain would, the heavy grain would fall down and the shaft would blow away. And then they would take that grain and gather it up and, and store it or use it or whatever they did with it. But that that's, was the pra- cultural practice in this agrarian society. And it, this always happened at the end of harvest. Um, what we also need to know as modern readers, though, is that threshing floors were places to party and celebrate after the long, hard work of the harvest was complete. And in the time period of the judges, remember back to what we talked about at the first message, what was the judges known for that time period? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In this time period, threshing floors infamously became locations known for promiscuity, hookups, and prostitution. And this sets the scene for some very shady and honestly, very heartbreaking advice from Naomi to Ruth. Look at verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. In other words, make sure you don't do this with the wrong guy, Ruth. Okay? Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I've really wrestled with how to explain this and receive from gentle warnings from my very wise wife. So let me put it this way. 
If you are hearing Naomi's scheme as the original audience, you are blushing right now, and you're scrambling to cover the ears of your children. Naomi's advice is a string of suggestive Hebrew euphemisms, one right after the other, all of which have sexual overtones. Now, I don't want to make um, this sermon overly explicit, but I also don't want to candy coat what's going on here either. At its core, Naomi's plan is for Ruth to play the part of a prostitute and seduce Boaz. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Naomi's scheme for her Moabite daughter-in-law is for her her to do things the Moabite way. The narrator is making a very clear connection for us between this passage and, and even how the Moabites as a people group started. What's the Moabite way? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 19, there's some very intentional parallels here. We won't take time to look at that tragic story there this morning, but it's really, really messed up. Just trust me. It's about two women scheming to get heirs and security in a very morally twisted way. One of the heirs that resulted from their incestuous actions was a man named Moab, or a boy named Moab. That name Moab literally means um, Mohuab, daddy. Who's your daddy? In Hebrew, um, the Moabites... uh, uh, that, so that's where the, the whole Moabite uh, people group came from. So what is the Moabite way? Well, as we read on in the Old Testament, we, we come to Numbers 25 and realize that Moabite women became known for their powers of seduction, shall we say. Numbers 25 contains the historical record of Moabite women seducing a large number of Israelite men, drawing them into worshiping false gods. And Naomi also knew firsthand the allure of Moabite women and the accompanying moral weakness of Israelite men. She had seen both of her sons fall for Moabite women while living in Moab and take them as their wives, Ruth being one of those. So what's Naomi's plan? Let's do this the Moabite way, Ruth. Here's what we can kind of conclude about her thought process. One, it's been about three months and we're still without the security of family. Two, we have food to eat now, but a long winter is coming. Three, God seems to be sitting on his hands and not providing the security of family for us that we need. Four, we better take matters into our own hands and formulate a plan. Five, Israelite men have a weakness for the lures of Moabite women. And Ruth, you happen to be a Moabite woman. Let's do things the Moabite way. Six, what have we got to lose? You know, nothing really. If Boaz rejects Ruth, we're in the same place that we started, destitute without a family. And we might have to resort to this type of lifestyle anyway. And number seven, what do we have to gain? Well, if you seduce Boaz, at the very least, we can entrap him into giving us more food to keep his indiscretion quiet. Also, this could potentially work out to provide an heir for us. Or best case scenario, this will encourage or obligate Boaz into leverage marriage. So Ruth, let's send you down to the threshing floor. Let's send you down to the threshing floor. My friends, this is not the advice that you would give to your daughter on how to find a husband. It is not. It's heartbreaking. 
This is an ungodly, immoral, and manipulative plan. And then we read Ruth's response to Naomi in verse 5. And she replied, all that you say I will do. And as the readers, we should be shouting out loud here, no, Ruth, no, don't do this. This goes against everything that's upright and God, God un- this goes against everything that's upright and godly. This is firmly placing you on the path of unbelief and manipulation, not the path of faith. You're not really going to go through with this, Ruth. Are you? Are you? Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So Ruth waits till he goes to sleep, and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Oh, no, this isn't good. The Hebrew euphemisms here are making it clear that Ruth is making herself available to Boaz. That Ruth is following her mother-in-law's instructions to a T, at least up until this point. Putting herself in a potentially very, very compromising position. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You know, we're really not sure what startled or caused Boaz to stir from sleep in the middle of the night, but probably every parent in the room can kind of relate with this um, type of an experience. You're sleeping soundly, then all of a sudden you just kind of sense something. There's a presence there. Something breathing. And you're thinking in your subconscious, and you kind of open your eyes, and then boom. There's this face right there that goes, Mommy or Daddy, and you, like, jump out of your skin, you know. Thankfully, my kids have, have like, gotten out of that stage. Um, I'm really, really thankful for that. When they need something in the middle of the night, they text us. You know, they don't. Um, but, <laughs> whew. But you, you know that feeling if you're a parent and you've ever had that happen to you. It just startles you. I think that's what Boaz's experience here, because he doesn't have kids. Um, but he, he's awakened in the middle of the night, and he's startled. And then he says this in verse 9. He said, who are you? <laughs> he, he doesn't know who this is. Who are you? What, what on earth are you doing here? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you. Our Redeemer. And right here is where things get very, very interesting. Because Ruth calls an audible. She, she totally departs from Naomi's game plan. Naomi had explicitly told her what? He will tell you what to do. But Ruth instead takes charge and courageously tells Boaz what to do. You see that? She calls an audible, departs from the game plan, and, and she says to Boaz, spread your wings over your ser- servant for you, our redeemer, and bells should be going off in our brains as we recall what was said. And this is the, the problem with reading a story over months rather than over minutes. <laughs> we should recall what happened in chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz is praying a prayer of um, a protection over, over Ruth using the same wings of of protection, a prayer blessing, using the same language of wings of protection in that prayer or that blessing. And, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Talking about her kindness to, to Naomi. 
the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth calls an audible, takes charge of the situation, and reminds Boaz of his blessing. Hey, Boaz, remember, remember what you said to me? Remember when you prayed that the Lord would spread his wings of protection over me? Guess what, Boaz? Now it's time for you to be the answer to that prayer. Wow, this is really forward of Ruth to say the least, but it's also noble and courageous. No, Naomi has put Ruth in a very vulnerable and potentially compromising position, but what Ruth does in this vulnerable and compromising position is nothing short of a courageous, a courageous attempt to not compromise. She dispenses with the manipulative plan of her mother-in-law, cuts to the chase, gets down to brass tacks, and boldly proposes marriage to Boaz on the threshing room floor before anything else can happen. Will you marry me? Will you be my kinsman redeemer? Wow. And a Moabite woman has just proposed to an Israelite man. A worker in the field has just proposed to the owner of the field. A younger person has just proposed to an older person. This is, this is breaking all the social norms. This was risky, to say the least. And how in the world is Boaz going to respond? And we as readers should be holding our breath going, oh no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Let's find out what happens. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Thank goodness. Sigh of relief. He's not going to reject her. He's not scolding her. He's not going to take advantage of her in any way. He's a man of noble character. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. In other words, Ruth, your kindness to me right here is greater than the kindness that you've shown to Naomi. He's flabbergasted, blown away by the fact that Ruth is interested in marrying him. Perhaps this is why Boaz hasn't made a move in three months. We don't know why, but apparently he had just no clue that Ruth would be interested in him. He probably thought it was a long shot at, at, at least and um, didn't think he had a chance. Maybe he, she's beautiful and he's ugly. I don't know. Um, or he thought that he was too old for her. We're just, we're just not sure, but we do know that he's shocked that she is interested in him. Verse 11, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a what? Say it with me. Worthy woman. Some translations put woman of noble character. Woman of noble character. This is wonderful. Boaz promises to redeem her. He calls her a worthy. He calls her a woman of noble character. This is the same language that's used in Proverbs 31. Are you familiar with that passage? This is the, the last chapter in the book of Proverbs talks about a wife of noble character. Ask the question, a wife of noble character, who can find? Who can find? Quick side note. Our English Bibles put Ruth in with the historical books because it happened in the time of the judges. But it likely wasn't written until later when the writings were written, like Psalms and Proverbs and when those were compiled. And you know where most Hebrew texts put Ruth? Right smack after Proverbs 31, the last chapter in Proverbs. A wife of noble character who can find? Well, let's put this little short story here. <laughs> Boaz found one, and this is what it looks like. 
Okay, side note over. So all seems to be going well after verse 11. We can almost hear the wedding um, bells ringing, the, 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 or, or the music, musical score coming up in the back, background. Gone to the chapel and we You know, um, you can almost hear this. And, but then we get to a shocking and disturbing revelation from the lips of Boaz, verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet... Don't you hate the yets in Scripture sometimes? Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Oh, no. Oh, no. We were just getting to the good part. We were just getting to where everything was coming together beautifully. And then we find out there's another guy in the picture. There's another guy in the picture. There's a closer relative who has the right before Boaz to marry and redeem Ruth, to buy the land of Elimelech and provide and care for Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Verse 13, Boaz continues, Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So we see here another glimpse into the noble character of Boaz. He wants to do the right thing in the right way. He obviously desires to marry Ruth, but he doesn't want to take a shortcut to get to what he wants. He wants to do it the right way. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning. Probably not sleeping very much. We'll just put that. Just think of what would be going through Ruth's mind. Think about what's going through Boaz's mind. Their life is about to change. Probably staring at the stars going, what on earth is going to happen tomorrow? So she laid at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Let's just keep this on the DL because people might get the wrong impression about what just happened here. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. We're really not sure what six measures of barley is or how much it weighs. One commentator said it probably weighed about 75 pounds. I think he's just guessing, but it was a, a, probably enough food to, to last Ruth and Naomi through the winter at least. And, and we do know that Boaz did help hoist it up onto her back here, most likely, um, so Ruth is a sturdy woman. Yeah, you don't mess with her. She can carry your grain, you know? Um, and while all this is happening, there's an old widow, um, old widowed woman back home named Naomi, who's probably not sleeping very well either, if at all, nervously pacing back and forth, wondering what's gone on at the threshing floor. She's concocted this twisted plan this twisted scheme, and now she's anxiously awaiting Ruth to come home. You know, Ruth hadn't been sending her text messages, okay? Um, Ruth didn't have an Instagram account. She hasn't been taking couple selfies with Boaz at the threshing floor going hashtag blessed. You know, Naomi's totally in the dark around what's gone on. And so we get to verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, this is really interesting. What Ruth does here is share with Naomi something that Boaz had told her while he was giving her the barley. But the narrator waits until this point, until this time when Naomi is in the scene, to let us, the audience, in on what was said between Ruth and Boaz. 
Did you catch that? What did, what did Boaz say to Ruth while giving her the grain? You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, why is that significant? Do you remember hearing this word empty before in the book of Ruth? Where was it? Chapter 1. It should immediately take our back, minds back to Ruth one twenty one when Naomi came back from Moab with Ruth by her side, and what did she say? I went away full, but I have come back what? Totally empty. I had to be hurtful to Ruth, who's standing right there next to her, but totally empty with nothing. God's totally turned his back on me. Call me bitter. So here's the picture the narrator is painting for us. He's answering questions about the character of God as we go along. Questions that were were raised by Naomi's bitterness earlier in the book. When we turn our backs on God, does he turn his back on us? No, no. There's more mercy in God than there is sin in us. Naomi, you're not empty. You're not empty. Ruth has just shown up, not only with an abundance of grain, but also with a promise of redemption. She doesn't know where it's going to come from yet, but she has a promise of redemption. God has met her needs for both food and family. When it seems that God is far from you, when it seems that that he's not providing for you, when he's holding out on you, when he's, it feels like his back is turned towards you, my friends. Maybe, just maybe, he's still working behind the scenes to work things out for his glory, and you're good. He's still working in the shadows to bring redemption from ruin. You don't need to manipulate circumstances or take moral shortcuts to get what you think you need. God in his goodness will care for you and will provide for you in his time and in his way. And chapter three ends with a cliffhanger in verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Will Boaz marry Ruth or will this other guy, this other so-and-so that's closer relative? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. Or just read your Bible. Um, But as we wrap things up, let's go back and return to that question that we asked at the beginning. What should we do when God has us waiting? What should we do when God has us waiting? We see a very clear example in our text of what not to do, right? Um, It's pretty obvious. Don't do what Naomi did. My friends, God loves you. He cares for you. He's not going to... hold out on you. He's going to provide for you in his time and in his way, maybe not necessarily in your timetable or in your way that you think he should. He doesn't need you to take matters into your own hands and manipulate circumstances. You don't need to take moral shortcuts. Naomi was seeking the right thing, but in a very wrong way. And this story could have turned out so much differently and much more tragically at least for Ruth, if it wasn't for the intervening grace of God expressed through the courage of Ruth and the noble character of Boaz. So what should we do when God had us waiting? Two things. One, don't take the moral shortcut, my friends. Don't take the moral shortcut. Do take the path of faith. At the end of this chapter, we saw the example of Ruth and Boaz taking this path, this path of faith. 
They wanted to marry each other, that's obvious, but there's someone who had the right to be the redeemer before Boaz. And so they placed themselves and their desires in God's hands. We're gonna do what's right. They chose to seek the right thing in the right way through faith, not the moral shortcut of compromise. So what does this look like for you and I to take the path of faith? In the circumstances where God has us waiting, What does it look like for you to place yourself in God's hands this morning, my friends? As the band comes back up, I'd like for us all to make this personal and practical. It's easy to read God's word and say, oh, that's a nice story, and shut it and leave and go off into our our busy and hectic worlds. I don't want us to do that this morning. I want us to really think deeply about this and apply it to our current situations. What is it that you are waiting on that symbolizes for you freedom and joy and life and security and redemption and hope? What is it that your heart really, really wants, but it's just not happening? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's an achievement of some sort. I'd like you to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. Get a mental picture of what you're waiting for. What is it? What is it? What is that thing that symbolizes your heart's longings? Oh, if you just had this, then then I'd be happy. Then I'd be fulfilled. Then I'd be secure. Then I'd be significant. What is it? Picture that in your your mind, would you? I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, I encourage you to take the path of faith rather than the shortcut of compromise with whatever you're picturing. Dear God, We're all thinking of something right now that for us seems to be what we at least think we need or want deeply. And Lord, it's easy for us because our hearts are idol factories. It's easy for us to reach out to those things thinking that they will be what brings us security. They will be the things that bring us significance and satisfaction in life. But Lord, we read the warnings that you give over and over and over in Scripture. Think of the one in Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We often look to things to quench our thirsty hearts that will not provide the satisfaction that only you can provide as a stream of living water. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and when we seek satisfaction and security and significance in anything else, when we make anything, even as a good thing, a God thing, it gets so messed up and our hearts go sideways. So Father, help us to take the path of faith with these things that we want and not the moral shortcut of compromise. Help us to place these things in your hands now. Help us to do that even mentally. Just hand these things to you, knowing that you are actually the one to provide perfect fulfillment and satisfaction and security and significance for us in your time and in your way. And oftentimes it's through you and your presence with us in the middle of a broken and jacked up world. Help us not to seek our comfort in anything else. Because God, we know deep down And we trust and we believe that there is nothing better than you. As we sing the lyrics that will echo that, 
there's nothing better than you. Lord, help us to make that a prayer from our heart. Not all of us are there yet. (laughs) I'm not many times. Help us to make it an aspirational prayer that sinks deeper into the crevices of our heart where we don't yet believe that you are enough.